This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, the boss, Don Baer, once my boss at the Clinton White House, was last month named the new boss of Burson Marsteller, the global communications giant. It's a move that puts him in the driver's seat of a firm that shapes public opinion in every corner of the world. Don's career, which began as a lawyer, moved into journalism and then government and entertainment, has often been as the consigliere, dispensing sage advice behind the scenes. Now he's finally in front of the curtain at Burson, returning to our show and joining me for another tour of global polyoptics. Then, more bosses. The boss, Bruce Springsteen, is in the middle of a blockbuster world tour with the E Street Band. One of his biggest fans, current New Jersey boss Chris Christie, recently took in one of his shows in Newark. By his count, the 129th time he's watched Springsteen play. You'd think these two sons of New Jersey would be fast friends, but it's a story of unrequited love. Jeffrey Goldberg, national correspondent for The Atlantic, usually its prolific chronicler of all things Middle East, tagged along with the governor and offered readers a story of a man who might be vice president, but who really just wants to jam with the man. Jeffrey will join us later in the program to give us the story firsthand, but first we welcome back to Polyoptics the new boss of Burson Marsteller, my friend and mentor, Don Baer. Welcome back, sir. Josh, how are you? It's great to see you. Congratulations on this role. Thank you. Thank you. It's a real thrill. It's a big responsibility, but I'm looking forward to it. But you know, this boss thing, I love the way you pull that thread all the way through. Of course, that's great. As I remember it, I worked for you in the White House, right? I, Weren't you the boss? I, I did. Everyone worked for you. I did know how things work, and I was able to maneuver some things, and you'd say one thing, and I'd do another. That was fine. Yeah, I remember uh, that. What was what was the uh, the call that you gave me from Air Force One um, after you were taking off from Nice and the Nats? And, and was, you want that story? Yeah, let's give it up, That's as long as listeners one. want to know so exactly what happened. This was 1996, yeah. seven. 1997 at the G7 summit, it was then called. In, it was in Lyon. In Lyon. Right, in right. Lyon, France. And there was always, at the end, the president would do his own press briefing. And Josh had set up, because he was always looking for the great shot, the great picture. Had to go outside. Great optics, polyoptics. He, he had set up this great shot outside uh, on the edge of a beautiful little lake there. Um, and it was a hot day in June. Uh, I was told not to do it, but I pushed of ahead. Of course, anyway. you were told not to do it, and you <laughs> did it anyway because you were certain of your 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 picture images. And so there were fruit flies uh, because of the hot camera, the lights for the cameras, TV cameras. There were some sort of flies that were swarming around the microphone where the president was going to be speaking. He had not come out yet, and uh, Josh came and sprayed the. Uh, lectern, the presidential podium, uh, <laughs> with, with some kind of inse insecticide. Toxic right? repellent. And the insecticide, <laughs> the insecticide uh, uh, was all there. And then the president came out and he put his hands there on the podium. You oh, know, my God. And it was hot. And the flies came back. For a moment, the flies disappeared. And then they came back. And they were swarming around the president's head where the lights were pointed. And he began to wipe his eyes and his face with... Insecticide on it, and the next thing you know, the president's eyes are tearing and streaming, and he's basically crying on camera, and it was a complete disaster. Uh, of course, 
No one knew Josh was responsible. And I got, got on a flight, Air Force One, <laughs> back to uh, well, Paris, where we were going. The Clintons were going for dinner that night, and the staff was kind of going along. And the phone rings, the big red phone rings on Air Force One, and it's Leon Panetta, now the Secretary of Defense, who at the time was the White House Chief of Staff. And he didn't say hello. He didn't say, how you doing? He said, don't even bother to come home. <laughs> so uh, that was, you know... That was my success story there. As was I that recall, ninety six or ninety seven. Well, it was right after Cobar Towers, or coincident with Cobar Towers, right, right? Right. And a couple of old guys here can't remember which year it was. And it was also, you know, a lot was accomplished with that G seven, but you was, wouldn't it know was it. Ninety six. Because the questions were about Cobar Towers, and also about the Craig Livingstone report. Yeah. Or yeah. what was going on yeah. with that? So anyway, that was one of my uh, finest hours. But let's turn the conversation back to Don Bear. Serious um, matters. Uh, several years as vice chairman of Burson Marsteller and of Penn Schoen Burland. And uh, what's it been like in the transition? And suddenly you are out in front of the world's largest PR firm, or at least one of the largest. One of the largest. The best. What's it felt like the last few weeks? Uh, the, the, the cliche is a fire hose experience. Um, um, it's just been a couple of weeks, just taking over a lot of people to talk to around the world, uh, clients. Uh, uh, our market leaders everywhere in the world, our senior leadership teams, our people. I've been out and about uh, listening um, uh, to people and making sure everyone knows that uh, we're committed to being the very best uh, strategic communications firm in the world on behalf of our clients and, and for our people to know that that's what our expectations and hopes are. Is this the track that you thought your career would take when you were a lawyer at Patterson, Belknap, Webb, and Tyler? <laughs> I have. There's no way anyone could predict. I always say that the only polite way to describe my career is to say it's been eclectic, but the truth is I can't hold down a profession, right? So I've been a lawyer for three years, five months, and three days in New York. And that's Loved how, that. Yeah, it was great. Uh, <laughs> very nice people. And then I was a journalist for the better part of a decade, mostly at U.S. News and World Report in Washington. Worked with Josh in the Clinton White House, first as the chief speechwriter and then the communications director. Worked at a, a Discovery Communications, the home of the Discovery Channel, for almost nine years. Uh, and have been at Burson now for four, four and a half years. You can't predict anything like that. And if you could, people would think you were crazy. So uh, it's been an interesting, uh, uh, fun uh, experience, set of experiences where I've had to learn constantly new things. I always tend to throw myself into the deep end and I'm never quite sure if I'm going to swim. With the help of great people like Josh, uh, I've been able to stay afloat. Uh Bear family, Nancy, the kids, other relatives, proud of your stepping up? I think so. That's They're, great. You know, I'm going on, on about we're proud of our sons. Our older son, uh, Nick, uh, just graduated from Brown University and has just started his first job at, of all places, the Clinton Foundation, where he's working in the Clinton Health Access Initiative, the Global Health Fund here in New York City. And the, our younger son, Adam Bear, just graduated from high school and starts at Dartmouth College uh, this month. Wonderful. So we'll have a ski trip up to, to visit and right. Hanover and all those things. And it'll be uh, in t 2016, he'll start working he, in the New Hampshire primary. Well, I think it was one of the things that appealed to him. He'll be there for 2016. Um, so you join uh, Jack Martin, Richard Edelman, uh, as the head of these three huge firms, Edelman and Hill and Knowlton and Burson Marsteller. Two I, people, by the way, I respect a great deal. And, you know, I, I track your movements to things like the Aspen Ideas Festival, the things you put on in Washington. You what track is, me? I do. I, got, I, have you, I have you on your Google alert. Um, 
what's what is the sort of Sturm and Drang of the uh, of the global PR firm CEO? What do you where do you have to go? Where do you have to be? How often are you on the move? You have to go everywhere. Uh, you have to be where the the work is, uh, both to be there for the clients or the potential clients whom you're trying to appeal to, and you have to be there for the people that do your work and with whom you work, your colleagues. Um, uh, in the next few months, because this is just starting out, I expect to be out and about a great deal. One of my uh, peers whom I talked to, had lunch with recently, said he was on the road about three-quarters of the time. Uh, and you're traveling all over the world to great, fascinating places, meeting with very interesting people. So one place you might go, uh, given the way they are in the news these days, is you might ask for a meeting with Dan Cathy, uh, the CEO and chairman of Chick-fil-A. Let's hear what he said on the radio a few weeks ago, and which started a firestorm and people like our friend Rahm Emanuel weighed in. Let's hear Dan and then Rahm. I think we're inviting God's judgment on our nation when we shake our fist at him and say, you know, we know better than you as to what constitutes a marriage. Then let's hear what Mayor Rahm Emanuel of Chicago had to say in response. Chick-fil-A's values are not Chicago values. They're not respectful of our residents, our neighbors, and our family members. So Rahm wasn't actually saying don't come to Chicago, and Rahm is a friend of ours. Uh, but you, Don Bear, are a child of North Carolina. Um, it, does it make sense for the mayor of Chicago or the mayor of Boston or people in government positions to weigh in what a CEO has to say on a re- religious basis? People in uh, elected positions and political positions are going to do what they feel they need to in order to express concerns or interest of their various constituencies. I, I don't think that uh, I would condemn uh, Mayor Emanuel Rahm for expressing his point of view. Uh, and I think if I were the management of Chick-fil-A, uh, I would be endeavoring to point out that notwithstanding the personal point of view of the CEO, that Chick-fil-A as an institution uh, welcomes everyone. Uh, and that uh, that's probably the way forward for this so that they can find common ground in terms of uh, what will work for everybody. Chick-fil-A is not a client of Burson Marsteller, but assuming Dan Cathy was or another CEO who has created a, uh, a dust-up like this, what do you or your colleagues do when you come into the room first and say, you got a problem, here's how we can help? Well, one of the things we do first is to say, don't do anything precipitous. Um, There's always, uh, in a crisis situation, an impulse to um, go and do something immediately without assessing the situation, what the real damage is, and and what the best ways forward are. Uh, Sometimes you can do more harm uh, in the instant uh, that you think you have to move rather than waiting to see how things develop. But again, I think... What we're trying to do typically is to express the broader values of the institution, the corporation, what other uh, other kind of institution we're working for, that typically will go beyond what an individual may have said. And indeed, in the case of Chick-fil-A, it is a company. It has other stakeholders, if you will. It has others who have interest, including its shareholders uh, and its consumers uh, around the country who are supportive of it to the extent that they uh, enjoy and appreciate the products there. And so I think part part of what, what we try to do is to uh, take the heat out of a situation uh, and move it to a place where there can be a resolution that's going to be satisfactory. In terms of 
diffusing the heat and passion of a situation. Uh, this last few weeks, we are now just a few weeks removed from the uh, shooting in Aurora, Colorado, uh, at the Batman uh, Dark Dark Knight Rising uh, premiere, and then just following on that, the attack at the Sikh temple in in uh, Milwaukee. I want to hear a little bit of what President Obama said when he visited Aurora, and then what Mitt Romney said, and then look back to 1995 and the experience we had with Oklahoma City. What matters at the end of the day is not the small things. It's not the trivial things, which so often consume us and our daily lives. Ultimately, it's how we choose to treat one another and how we love one another. Let's hear Governor Romney. Our, our hearts break with the sadness of this unspeakable tragedy. Anne and I join the President and First Lady and all Americans in offering our deepest condolences for those whose lives were shattered in a few moments, a few moments of evil in Colorado. Now let's go back to April 1995 and an event none of us will ever forget, nor the President's reaction at the time. Innocent children in that building only because their parents were trying to be good parents as well as good workers. Citizens in the building going about their daily business and many there who served the rest of us, who worked to help the elderly and the disabled, who worked to support our farmers and our veterans, who worked to enforce our laws and to protect us. Let us say clearly, they served us well and we are grateful. Now, we won't know for many years probably what John and Brennan said to President Obama when he woke him up or, or briefed him early in the morning after the Dark Knight Rises event in, uh, in Aurora, nor what went through Governor Romney's mind. But we do have Don Baer, uh, who lived through, I think, every minute of the bombing of Oklahoma City. And you were, you were not that long at the White House at the time, right? No, I had been there over a year at that point. What the happened? thing you're thinking about that I hadn't been there long for was when President Nixon died and That's I needed right. to work on preparing the eulogy for President Nixon, which was just a few weeks in. And I insisted on President Clinton walking down the colonies. Why do I always have to do this? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. President's a shot. Richard Nixon is dead. Wait, I need yeah, you walking in the colonnade. I need you to do the most craven thing possible. <laughs> <laughs> what happened with Oklahoma City? Well... You know, it's interesting. Oklahoma City came after a long stretch of time in which we had not had an attack of that magnitude on our home soil. Uh, now, Waco had taken place uh, two years before, but that was a very different thing. You know, you go all the way back to uh, Pearl Harbor, and of course you go forward to September 11th, but uh, Oklahoma City was quite a shock and a, a stunning thing to uh, to the nation when it happened. Very sadly, these things now have become all too routine. Uh, so at that time, uh, there was a much greater need for the president to step up and heal the country. I'm not saying the country doesn't require healing now, but unfortunately the wounds that are inflicted on us are coming more rapidly at this point. Um, so, you know, what happened, first off, the morning of the attack, which was April 19th, 1995, um, I've talked about this before, but those of us at the time, I was the 
head speechwriter. I became communications director later that summer. Um, no one told the speechwriters anything that it had happened, that there might be a statement required or anything like that. And uh, I walked into the office of our good friend Jonathan Prince, who uh, was one of our speechwriters at the time, and Prince was watching um, uh, CNN, and that's right. where we learned about it. I was at O'Hare, saw it on CNN. And monitors. Jonathan and I, at his computer, started writing a statement because we figured sooner or later someone would remember that they needed to call <laughs> the speechwriters. And lo and behold, an hour or so later, they did. And he and I hustled over to the Situation Room where yep. the president was cloistered with uh, his uh, advisors, and we had a statement for him. And it worked, uh, although he added one word. So the end of that speech, that was the first statement that he made, uh, said something about, you know, the, the, think, the work of these cowards will not stand. And he added in the crucial ingredient word, the work of these evil cowards will not stand. And that was just, it set it all off. So then there was the work towards the uh, memorial service right. that was held on Sunday of that week. There was other work in between. We had to do a radio dress. We did all kinds of things because it was felt that we really needed to speak to the country. You know, uh, there's a long story behind the drafting of that speech and then working with the president on the way down on the Air Force One. I will just say, uh, walking into, I think it was called the Cow Palace there in Oklahoma City with him and the presidential entourage, that was the saddest scene that I have ever witnessed. Uh, it was probably 20,000 people there, and it was completely silent, quiet, except for the sound of sobs. Um, and the president, of course, this is one of those things that President Clinton was so good at, that, that conveying that sense of empathy uh, for people who had experienced a loss. And at the same time, frankly, there was a theme. If you th Just the clip that you played. These people were government workers. They were bombed in part because they were government, government workers. And what he was reminding people of is that they were public servants. It's right. a very different way to look at it. And remember, was it that day or at another day did he repudiate the word bureaucrat as a pejorative? That came later, um, I think, in the Michigan State speech, which right. was the um, commencement yeah. uh, speech a, a few weeks later. And, of course, you know, this it, it came all the way through to the State of the Union address eight months later uh, in which he had someone up in the uh, balcony with the First Lady uh, who had been there. Uh, it was a survivor of that attack. Um, and he basically said to the American people, and most importantly to Congress, we should never, ever again use terrorism as a way uh, to express our political point of view in this country. And it was a very powerful moment. And then, of course, in Oklahoma City, because the Cow Palace was sort of low-ceilinged and dark, but it was the only place to accommodate as many people as wanted to arrive for the uh, memorial service. We went to the site of the Moore building itself, laid a wreath, and uh, yours truly found a bagpiper who could play some amazing grace up in the... Nicely uh, done. Yeah. Well, Josh was always there. Um, as you watch the way the President Obama deals with these situations, Governor Romney deals with these situations, what's your comparison about the, the, the role of the president and how he, he executes that role today? Each president has a different style with regard to these things. President Clinton was coming out of a background in which, as governor of Arkansas for a long time, he was always flying off to, driving off to these uh, natural and unnatural disasters. 
uh, in making clear that the people of the state of Arkansas, the people of the country were there with, with those folks who were suffering. I think it was just something that he had had more practice with, perhaps, than President Obama's had, um, and maybe that came more naturally to him. And that's not to take anything away from President Obama and the way he's done it. I do think because we've had so many more now of these instances, and it's really a very sad situation, as I say, it's harder for these things to stick in the public consciousness. Yeah, they go. You know? And it's a difficult pivot for a guy like Governor Romney, too, who is a businessman, uh, has not held a, uh, beside his one term as governor of Massachusetts, where there are not those kinds of disasters uh, and moments to to be practiced in this. Also difficult as we sort of pivot uh, for him to go overseas uh, and sort of show his his statesmanship chops uh, on a visit to first London uh, and then Israel and Poland. And I want to hear a little bit of his speech, a beautiful visual, by the way, at Golden Hour with the limestone of Jerusalem behind him. But the delivery uh, was, well, let's listen to it. It's, uh, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be in Israel again and to see so many dear friends. To step foot into Israel is to step foot into a nation that began with an ancient promise made in this land. The Jewish people persisted through one of the most monstrous crimes in human history. And now this nation has come to take its place among the most impressive democracies on earth. Israel's achievements are a wonder of the modern world. Don. Obviously, the trip was overshadowed by Governor Romney's comments to Brian Williams and the way that uh, Boris Johnson reacted to them and and David Cameron reacted to them, uh, his off-the-cuff comments uh, in Israel about Palestine. But in terms of uh, rhetorical exercise itself, these speeches and a guy who comes up to the podium and says, hey, great city, uh, how, how do you appraise him as a as a rhetorician on the podium. Well, I would say as a presidential level orator, Governor Romney is a good businessman. (laughs) I mean, he's just, this is not his thing. Uh, We'll see. He's got a big moment coming up with his uh, speech at the Republican convention. Uh, But he's not really ever thrilled uh, an audience, uh, in the words of Chris Matthews, listening to him speak, is not going to make a chill run up and down your leg, um, which is what he said about uh, candidate Obama in 2008. I, it, so that's not his appeal, frankly, um, which is not to say he doesn't have other things that are going for him. A moment like that would be catnip in Bill Clinton's hands. Yeah, well, and you were on the trip, right, in 94 yeah. uh, yep. when we went to the Middle East for the first time. Aqaba. Uh, yeah. Seven countries in six days. Um, and the president... D- my one and only trip to Damascus. <laughs> that's right. We were there in the palace. <laughs> Sitting in Assad's palace, yeah, smoking a... clove cigarettes with the Syrian soldiers. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. I mean, President Clinton, I mean, is at a whole different level for this. And we're going to see him at the Democratic Convention also. That's right. So I want to get to Clinton's role in Charlotte. Uh, but first, I mean, what do you do to reset in Tampa for Mitt Romney? What what can he do to because, look, there's a lot of centrists who who and maybe not that many undecideds, but there are people who could come uh, to him and his and his. Uh, so his ticket. his ultimate purpose is to instill in the American people a renewed sense of faith in themselves and in our country that under different leadership, 
we can actually move ourselves forward to a successful future for ourselves and our children. Reinstilling a sense of faith in ourselves. To get there, he has a few things. He needs to humanize himself and paint a different picture of himself, his background, his family, where he's come from, what he has accomplished. Uh, he needs to uh, provide a crisp uh, uh, critique of what uh, President Obama and the Obama administration have not been able to accomplish. And, and by the way, I suspect more with a tone of regret than a tone of condemnation. Uh, and then he needs, most important of all, to crisply, directly uh, make clear what a different path will be under in a Romney presidency. He's not done any of those three things particularly well so far. So that's what he's got to get done. Are you available to go up to Wolfboro and do some scribbling with him? <laughs> well, I, I'm going to be uh, on vacation this next week in New England, so I don't know. If, I don't expect to have a call. Uh, you're going to be at our favorite place in the world, Magus Lodge, right? Uh, later in the summer um, in Maine. Uh, now, moving up the East Coast to Charlotte, uh, Democratic National Convention has made a good move, in my opinion, condensing their event from, uh, from four nights to three. Uh, that leaves... Um, President Clinton putting President Obama's name in nomination. Uh, at this point in his life, how much focus and preparation and thought is Bill Clinton putting into this moment? Do oh, you think? Tremendous amount. I'm sure he's he's distilling and thinking and noodling and writing and writing and rewriting and rewriting and he'll be doing that up until moments before he goes on the on the stage. But he's I'm you know, I guarantee as you know, he's giving a great deal of thought to it. Uh, this is the first convention back in the South, I think, since Atlanta in 88. Yep. Uh, when Bill Clinton spoke. That's famously. right. Famously. In conclusion. Yay! And then he got, went on The Tonight Show and made up for it partially. Right. Before Michael Dukakis got up. But uh, what does it mean to bring a convention back to North Carolina and the South? Well, first time ever in North Carolina, and to bring it back to the South is a big statement for the Democrats to convene there. Uh, it uh, should be, and I think it will be conveyed this way, as a statement about the future. You know, I'm from North Carolina. One of the uh, factoids I love about North Carolina, the highest proportion of college students of any na state in the nation, which is to say it's a state about the future. Uh, it's a state also that has great diversity, large Hispanic population, large African-American population. It has people from all parts of the country who really have kind of in-migrated to North Carolina for different kinds of businesses that are there. It's, you know, what we used to call the New South, Charlotte very much the center of the New South. Uh, and it, it's about what the potential and possibility of America should be. Um, not that they don't have their challenges and unemployment issues and the like, but what the potential and possibility of our country should be when we come together to work together to make a better place. So, Don, we just have a couple more minutes left with you. Um, if you're, I don't know if you're like me, but I've watched the uh, creation and dissemination of either super PAC or campaign advertisements that are so hostile uh, from both sides. Uh, it, it really is it's grating on me, at least so early in the cycle. And I, I was reminded um, and went back this morning of uh, our, our old friend, the late Bob Squire, 
and the train trip that we did from Huntington, West Virginia to Chicago, Illinois, him toting around his 16 millimeter camera, getting beautiful images, and then doing some stuff at the White House, sort of with a dolly track, looking behind Clinton as he looks over Marine One on the South Lawn, and you would hear some of Clinton's speech, really of some of the themes that you and Mark and Dick uh, and others created in 1996. And I want to just finish maybe going back then, hearing that commercial that Bob Squire created and get our, get your thoughts about how that compares to where we are today. And let me say to you that I am honored to have been given the opportunity to stand up for the values and the interests of ordinary Americans. My job as president is to take care of the American people. And I have done my best to take good care of this country. We are safer, we are more secure, we are more prosperous. But in the end, what we stand for, the values we embrace and the things we fight for, will shape the future that we will all live with. If we hold out our hands in cooperation, but always stand up for what we know is right, this country's future will be even brighter than its brilliant past. It is our responsibility to make that happen. It's been a while since you heard that. Yeah, well, that's essential, Clinton. Uh, you can talk about any ones of us who had something to do with crafting that, but that was really President Clinton. It was the same message he brought to the country in 1992 when he ran the first time. Uh, it's this. It's the message of president as uniter, not divider. It's the uh, a message of a country that is moving forward, not backward, but not moving forward based on divisions, but moving forward based on unity. Uh, and it's also a it's a values message, right? It's not a um, green eye shade message. It's a message about the fundamental enduring values of the country, and if you will, how you take those across the bridge to the 21st century. We're going to get wistful Wednesday night in Charlotte. We? <laughs> We're getting too old, Josh. Don Bear, the new uh, president and CEO of Burson Marsteller, congratulations, my friend, and thank you so much for coming back to the Thanks, show. Thanks, Josh. It means a lot. Thank you very much. Jeffrey Goldberg, national correspondent for The Atlantic, with a great story this summer, uh, Jersey Boys, which I'll post at polyoptics.com. Welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you. I have to say, uh, you, you, this story, uh, Jersey Boys, is, as you write, a story of unrequited love. But getting assigned this by James Bennett, was this for you a labor of love? <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 went to, I, w- I went to James and, and said... Um, you know, this is the thing that's so interesting about about Christie's love of Springsteen um, is that it's it's rare to, to run into a politician, especially a national level politician, who has uh, any interest outside of politics. Um, in my experience, they've become increasingly monochromatic. And I and I had a breakfast with with Christie. Uh, a while back and you know we were supposed to talk about the things that you talk about but instead we wound up uh, spending a lot of time talking about uh, Springsteen and I thought you know this is interesting this is a guy who has a has a very deep relationship with an artist 
and and that's pretty rare in politics. And I just thought it's an interesting window onto a guy. And then it got more interesting, obviously, because uh, Springsteen's uh, Springsteen does not return the love. Quite obviously, doesn't return the love. Um. I was wondering as I read the piece, did you have to go up to Camden and sort of bang on the door and and try and get a chance to to do this story, or was this was Christie open up and say, "Hey, let's go to the Rock and do this piece"? Oh, uh, Christie and I spent probably three or four hours in his office one afternoon listening to Springsteen songs. I, I, I mean, you know, it, it's not a great secret of journalism, but you, you're going to have an easier chance of getting an interview with someone if they want to talk about the thing that you want to talk about. And and in this case, you know, my, my interest, how do I, I have to be careful here, my interest in the municipal matters that preoccupy the citizens of New Jersey um, is, of course, deep and sincere. Of but course. I yeah. But, yeah, you know, uh, I, I, I can't say that it's, you know, those, those, those set of issues are in my top 10 set of issues. So this was um, this was fun. Now, obviously, it's in his top 10 set of issues, but he he, he sees it as, a, as, as, a, as as seamless in a way. He believes that Springsteen embodies both the spirit of the state he governs and he believes that Springsteen embodies a very Republican idea of an American success story, which, of course, I, I think and I'm guessing here, I think that must um, fry Springsteen's beans a little bit, uh, given Springsteen's left wing politics. Did Springsteen and his people know that Governor Christie would be coming to a suite at The Rock that night uh, with a, a reporter from The Atlantic in tow? And oh, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, Spring, you know, Christie, it's interesting. You know, you'd think, you know, as the, as the governor of Springsteen State, you'd get treated royally by people who organize the concerts, the Springsteen organization. Uh, and, of course, the state owns a box, a luxury suite or whatever you call it at the rock. And, and of course he's the governor. So he gets a lot of friends who have go to Springsteen concerts, but he doesn't get any special treatment from them. And, and I doubt that they knew he was there. Look, he's been to 129 concerts, so he's a regular presence. And, and Christie tells the story of, of being at a very small show, I think 400 people, um, maybe in Red Bank, New Jersey recently, where he's absolutely sure Springsteen saw him. I mean, you can't, um, miss the governor, you know, surrounded by state troopers and the, sort of the whole excitement that goes along with that. Uh, and, and and Springsteen, you know, makes no effort to uh, engage with the governor at all. And and he was looking at him, Christie said, you know, much of the evening and wouldn't acknowledge him. Jeffrey, let's hear uh, one of these tracks from the, the newest album, I think, uh, of Springsteen and remind me how Governor Christie reacted to it and what he would think about the lyrics and the message. I'll mow your lawn Clean the leaves out your drain I'm in your roof To keep out the rain I'll take the work That God provides I'm a jack of all trees. Honey, we'll be all right. So that's Jack of All Trades, Jeffrey. What's what's Chris Christie think of that song? Well, this is what's so interesting and complicated about the relationship Christie has to the music. Uh, Christie, on the one hand, loves Springsteen's newer 
work and the more politically controversial work. On the other hand, he he uh, he finds it lecturing and hectoring, and he doesn't have a lot of patience for the sort of kill the bankers kind of uh, meme that's that's uh, that's comes through some of Springsteen's most recent uh, work. And when I was at the concert with him. You know, people who've been to Springsteen concerts know that at a, at a certain point, he usually stops and talks for a couple of minutes about the state of the economy and the state of the world and what the bankers are doing to to, to Main Street. And, and you know, Christie gives a – Christie's a big personality, as you know, so he gives a rather large eye roll, um, and he makes his feelings known to everyone around him that he thinks it's, um, you know, kind of limousine liberal nonsense. Uh, and he um, – you know, he, he believes, Christie believes, that if he just had an opportunity to sit down with Springsteen and explain to him the mechanics of governing, the mechanics of, of collecting taxes and raising taxes and funding all of the things that Springsteen seems to want to fund, that Springsteen will understand why his political philosophy, why Christie's political philosophy is actually correct. Um, I don't, I don't, uh, think that that Springsteen would, would I'm not as optimistic about that as, as Christie is but um, so so spring so, so Christie has this kind of weird bifurcated relationship with with Springsteen's political music on the one hand he thinks Springsteen is a genius um, on the other hand he thinks that Springsteen is kind of typical of the you know America's artistic elite or cultural elite in that they have um, very strong sympathies for the downtrodden, but have no actual political sense about how to help them and what the limits of government are. So uh, I want to get to what Christie might do next uh, in a second, but your reporting is so colorful, and I'll ask Catherine Caperton, our producer, to press the the beep switch if if we must here on Satellite Radio, but I want to read just a portion of your piece because you are quoting the governor of New Jersey when you ask him what Springsteen's views are, and you quote Governor Christie saying, you want to know what he's saying? He's telling us that rich people like him are f***ing over poor people like us in the audience, except that us in the audience aren't poor because we can afford to pay 98 bucks to him to see his show. That's what he's saying. So yeah. Jeffrey Goldberg then says in reply, <laughs> wait a second, this is Bruce Springsteen we're talking about, the guy you adore. And Christie says, what does Christie say in response? I compartmentalize. Uh, you said compartmentalize. That's right. Uh, you know, and and to me, it, that's a that's a tough job to compartmentalize that. And I think it's also very hard on. Uh, I understand where Springsteen is coming from, but I also understand that it's hard on Christie to um, to 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 feel this rejection. Um, and I found that I found that answer so fascinating because it's it's very. Um, it's very accepting, you know. It basically says uh, he's basically saying, "Yeah, Bruce is full of, shit, but he's still my hero," uh, and and that's sort of his take in a in a sentence. So you gave color to the few times that Governor Christie and Bruce Springsteen have met over the years, but yeah, did you probe on what? I think prevents... it's only about twice. I think yeah, it's only just twice. twice. Once yeah. in a plane and once in an awards show, and yeah. And, and the plane was before Christie was famous. Yeah, he was 1999. Just guy from he Jersey. Was the, yeah, yeah, just he was a DA or prosecutor. Yeah. Uh, but what prevents the governor sitting in New Brunswick from picking up the phone and saying, in the way all New Jersey men do, saying, "Can we meet for a cup of coffee?" Uh, I, th- 
I would guess that it, the same thing that would, you know, uh, the same thing that keeps uh, men from calling up supermodels they know are going to reject them. I assume that he doesn't want to, uh, I assume it's personal and political in the sense that personal is I don't want to be rejected. Uh, I don't want to be told that I'm being rejected. Um, and political is, you know, you don't want to um, necessarily create a, a storyline that doesn't support you, that, 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 uh, that, that shows you to have been humiliated by, you know, the most popular, let's, let's face it, the most popular living New Jerseyan, Bruce Springsteen. And, and then that, on the that, other that wouldn't, that wouldn't go over very well, I think. And then on the other side of the ledger, though, uh, you you make you make well known the fact that look, I'm a, I worked for Bill Clinton for many years. I'm a Democrat, but Chris Christie is the sort of uh, uh, genuine article that I that I might be drawn to, and as might other Democrats. Uh, yeah. Why isn't why is Bruce Springsteen so rigid in his views that he can't draw a distinction between you know. Chris Christie and uh, Tom DeLay. I mean, are all Republicans yeah, yeah. evil to, to, to Bruce Springsteen? <laughs> well, I, Why can't he just I, I don't know. It's be a, a mystery mensch, because it's one, of, it's one of the things that Springsteen just won't talk about is the governor. I think the whole issue makes him very uncomfortable because you're dealing with, obviously, you're dealing with a popular uh, governor of your home state. You have to be polite to. And a huge fan. I mean, it would look very... Um, very uncharitable for him to go overtly anti-Christie, right? I mean, the guy's paid literally thousands and thousands of dollars to Bruce Springsteen over the last 30 years buying tickets and albums and everything else. It, would look, uh, it wouldn't look uh, big-hearted. Um, I don't know the, the answer to that. I actually think that, that no harm would come from Bruce Springsteen sitting down with Chris Christie and, and having Christie explain to him why he runs the state the way he runs the state. Springsteen doesn't have to agree with it. He could actually go in and lobby on behalf of the things that uh, that he cares about, and and you know, including you know more spending on homeless issues and 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 food banks and all the sort of things that we know Springsteen cares about. Um, but that's right. I mean, David had, Geffen had a tremendous effect over Bill Clinton. I mean, the relationships that get struck up. Well, that's the that's the thing. There might be a missed opportunity here also to advance a cause because you're you're exactly right. Chris Christie is. Very heterodoxical for Republican. I mean, he's a Northeast Republican. He's not heterodox. He may be heterodoxical in the national Republican picture. He's not heterodoxical necessarily for New Jersey. But here's a guy who, you know, is 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 making tremendous strides to uh, to end the the drug war in New Jersey and move toward a treatment based uh, ideology rather than a law enforcement based ideology. He's obviously um, a guy. I believe that he he'll be one of the first Republican elected officials to say, okay, fine, if the people want gay marriage, then we're going to have gay marriage in our state. I mean, it seems inevitable. Uh, I, I, I think that you're dealing with a guy who's not, um, you know, a Karl Rove or something like that. You're dealing with a guy, and this might be, you know, one of his problems in terms of uh, his national profile and whether he's picked to be vice presidential, uh, whether he's picked to be the uh, running mate for Romney, is that there are a lot of conservative Republicans who see him on the one hand as you know tough, no nonsense, law and order, pro capitalism, but on the other hand, kind of uh, socially wishy washy and um, you know not 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 a true believer in some of the important issues for them. I mean, based on the things that you have to write about and the care with which you have to write them when you're ta- writing about the Middle East, the unrestrained joy you seem to be, have in writing this piece that has in its first paragraph, Christie is in the presence of Springsteen, whom he would marry if he were gay, and if gay <laughs> people were allowed to marry in the state he governs, loses yeah. himself. 
He is, yeah. as is well known, a very large man, twice the width of Mitt Romney. He is um, twice the width of Mitt Romney, I think. I haven't measured Mitt Romney, but it's just an eyeballing kind of thing. Uh, yeah, you know, it's um, the Middle East uh, stopped being uh, fun to cover, uh, well, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, and um, now it's pretty dreary. And, you know, the truth is, and, 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 and I don't have to tell you this, that uh, politics, it, it, this, 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 this has been a very joyless oh. 2012 uh, joyless. campaign. It's horrible. It's like, uh, what's the, where's the... Where's the where's the bigness? Where's the fun? Where's the where's the vision? Where's the excitement? Um, all all of these things. It just seems like a kind of a you know a, like a, a joyless uh, knife fight or something. Um, so it's 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 always fun to run into a politician who still has a personality. And Chris Chris, I mean, whatever whether you hate him or or love him, vote for him or would never think of voting for him. I mean, this guy is one of the great retail politicians in America. Today, uh, he he's got uh, yeah he's he's big. His personality is even bigger, and you know some people find it boorish, some people find it coarse, but uh, but you know what? It's a personality. Uh, look at look at some of the people Mitt Romney's thinking about to pick his. Uh, as his vice presidential running mate, and uh, you know, personality is not the word that comes to mind. Uh, your your colleague Clive Crook wrote a nice little piece about the article. He says, "I take away two things. First, Christie is impossible to dislike. The man is an original. Second, Springsteen owes him a beer. There's something very mm. petty and disappointing about his refusal to acknowledge the governor's enthusiasm for his work. He's better than that. Surely, take it from Christie." Um, well, yeah. Uh, that's it's an interesting. Clive makes an interesting point, which is that, which is that um, uh, Christie. You know, it's interesting. You try to put yourself in Christie's shoes in this situation, and I think people around Chris Christie think, you know what, you know what, Chris, you know, Springsteen is. Um, he's being a hard ass, and you running around talking about how much you love him all the time doesn't matter. He, for political reasons, not personal reasons, will never talk to you. So give up. And and Chris Christie believes that. I mean, part of it is is like like any really good politician. Chris Christie believes he can convince anybody of anything. Just put him in a room, and an hour later, whoever he's talking to is gonna see the logic of of his of his argument. And he really believes that. Really believes that about about Bruce about Springsteen. And uh, so so I, I tend to agree with Clive, which is which is that you know you're not talking about some random governor of Nebraska who's been to 12 Bruce Springsteen concerts and wants to meet the guy, right? You're talking about the governor of his home state, you know, a, a guy who has the same you know ethnic background, comes from the same basic part of the state, has been a lifelong fanatic. 129 been, you know, shows. 129 show. I mean, I've met people who've been to 300, which is you know a level of insanity that I can't uh, master, but. Um, but but yeah, you know the guy the guy's a huge fan, and and I, I tend to I tend to dislike the this kind of totalizing political disputes, which is to say, you know, if I you might be the greatest guy on earth, but if we disagree on the following four issues, I refuse to talk to you. I, that's not good for America. It's not good for politics. Uh, and I got a lot of reaction to this piece from people who saying pretty much precisely that, which is. You know, it's great that that a guy like Chris Christie can can obviously find something wonderful about Bruce Springsteen with whom he shares nothing politically. You know, Springsteen is is a left liberal. 
Christie is certainly on economics, you know, uh, a, a right-leaning conservative. But, you know, they think it's – a lot of people sort of reacted to this by saying, wow, that's, that's great that he can do this. First of all, we don't see a lot of politicians um, – who have intense relationships with artists. I don't mean with the artists themselves. I mean with the art, whatever it happens to be. Right. Um, and you certainly don't see 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 people uh, having intense relationships with the art of, of, of a performer or an artist who is politically the opposite. And, and so I, I think there's a lot here, and I think um, – I don't see what 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 is, I mean. Springsteen is an icon and a hero, and we're going to remember his music a thousand years from now. I don't know what the harm is of 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 going to uh, of sort of having a you know having a sandwich with with Chris Christie. It's interesting. Let's hear another cut from the boss. All right, Jeffrey Goldberg. Uh, will Chris Christie have a rising toward the top presidential <laughs> ticket this year? Yeah, I don't. I don't necessarily think so. That's an amazing song, by the way. And tell that's me another about area. it. As well, a fan, as, tell me about that song. Well, I mean, that's just well. A a, it's amazing. It's, Springsteen is sixty two now. I think sixty two, or maybe going on pushing sixty three. Maybe. Um, I mean that 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 song came out nine ten years ago. The Rising from the Rising album, but he's been making you know he's making fairly good albums. Like he hasn't made Born to Run, obviously since he made Born to Run or Darkness at the Edge of Town, um, you know. But 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 who who makes original music? You know, thirty years, forty years after they've started making original music of that quality. But there's also something there, which is that you know this was the album, the post nine eleven album, and he gave voice to a lot of. But a lot of things that people were were feeling, people in the tri-state area, people. Yep. In, do you remember? You know, obviously Absolutely. hundreds of people from New Jersey died, um, uh, were killed, and uh, and so that is, you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a nuanced patriotic album. It's uh, it's mournful and triumphant, and it does all these things, and it's and it's very much the spirit of. Uh, very much encapsulates the spirit of New York and New Jersey in that period. And anyway, whatever. I don't. I could go on. But um, on the on the VP thing, you know, I've written about this. Uh, I've written about this a couple of times. It seems that you know Christie would be a dangerous pick in some in some ways. He has a he has a larger personality than Mitt Romney. Um, he's more charismatic. He's more verbal. Uh, he could cause. He could a overshadow the candidate. He could be step in it on occasion. Uh, on the other hand, if you were trying to excite uh, not only the Republican base but the you know the the, the the that group in the middle, you need to pull your way. Um, nobody. I mean, I've gone to four or five, six maybe different Christie Town halls over the last year. You know, which are a remarkable. Politically, because you know the fire marshal has to close all of them down. They, they got to stop letting people into these gyms because hundreds and hundreds of people come in a weekday morning to to you know hear the governor talk for an hour and a half, which is not you know they're going because they know it's going to be a good show, right? Uh, and, and so so the guy can fill a room in small towns in in southern New Jersey. Um, 
if if Romney were looking to excite his campaign, you'd think that he would want a guy who could fill. You know, I, this guy. I mean, Chris Christie could fill an arena, uh, or fill arenas. Um, but you know, again, there's there's the social conservative issue. Uh, there's the so-called danger issue of uh, God knows he's going to you know okay. blow his top, and Romney wants a disciplined person next to him. So I, I don't think there's a there's a there's a great chance of it. I, I think, from what I understand, his name is still in play. Jeffrey, we, we may know uh, when this show goes on the air who that person is. Uh, ah. Who? Uh, but we, but we shall remain uh, tuned in. I want to get before we let you go. Uh, your very educated perspective, because the the folks who followed Mitt Romney on his trip to uh, Great Britain, Israel, and Poland probably yeah. didn't have a, a thumbnail of your perspective uh, on yeah. what his visit to Israel meant. Can you share with our listeners your your view, having lived in Israel for so long, and your perspective on this, how the yeah. former governor of Massachusetts did in the Holy in the Holy State? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 interesting because a lot of the commentary afterwards, boy, he's you know he put his foot in it in Israel. Uh, you know, he he. He dissed the Palestinians, and in Poland it was the same thing. And obviously he had that flub in, in Great Britain. I don't think any of that hurt him with his base. I don't think it hurt him with potential donors, uh, maybe quite the opposite on the on the Israeli side of it. Look, that was a very—that uh, could have gone a lot worse, put it this way, in, 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 in global diplomacy terms. Uh, you know, I, I think that Romney and the prime minister of Israel, Netanyahu, were careful— uh, Romney was fairly careful not to be even obliquely critical while he was there of the Obama administration. Um, and Netanyahu was uh, was trying to be careful not to put his thumb on the scale and say, you know, this is the guy I like more. Everybody assumes that he likes Romney more than he likes uh, Obama. Obama, especially those Netanyahu. who watched his performance in the Oval Office about eight months. Yeah, ago. yeah. There, there, there's that's a that's a. I, you know, I interviewed President Obama a few months ago on this subject of Iran, and well, obviously the sort of the preoccupation of everybody in this field uh, right now, and the preoccupation of that trip. Um, and you know, I asked. I don't know why it came to me, but I said uh, to the president, I said, are, are you two friends? Meaning, you know, President Obama and Prime Minister Netanyahu. And, and President Obama had such an elegant answer. He, he basically looked at me and he, and he kind of had a little smile on his face and he, and he said, um, well, you know, we're all so busy with our jobs, <laughs> uh, which I thought was very, you know, <laughs> a very clever way uh, of answering it. But I, I think, I, I think, um, People who are close to the president thought, oh, you know, Romney is going over there to try to get the endorsement of Netanyahu, who is popular not only among conservative-leaning Jews, but popular uh, among Republicans and evangelicals. Um, I, I think a lot of traps were, were avoided on, on that trip. But it, clearly, you know, the countries that, that, that Romney picked, Great Britain, Israel, and Poland, are all countries that uh, governments have had their doubts about Obama and his fortitude. And so it was, it was a cleverly designed trip. I don't know. Um, it, it, didn't, it didn't strike me as a particularly graceful trip. No. Well, Jeffrey Goldberg, national correspondent for The Atlantic, with a great story this summer, uh, Jersey Boys, which I'll post at polyoptics.com. We've only scratched the surface of the things that you and I, th I think, yeah. can chat about. So I hope you come back and join us. I'd love to. Thank you. Let's take it out with a little Thunder Road, shall we? Excellent. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, 
Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual. Think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. Thank you.